Hey everybody, this is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast with a bit of an unusual start today. I am recording extremely remotely and not anywhere near my regular gear, which will explain why the intro sounds as different as it does. So rather than pontificate, I'm going to dive right into a teaching that I did on Sunday via Zoom about the nature of Acts 8. There are two things that I believe are coming. One is persecution and the other is revival. And the effect of both of those on our hearts is going to be remarkably similar in that it is going to lay bare all that is within us. I am incredibly optimistic about the future, but I'm also realistic. We talk about that in this teaching from Acts 8. And we want to dive into that as we look at week four of a series we've been on. If you're uh, visiting with us maybe for the first time, um, called Little Rough and Ugly, as we pursue an understanding of what the early church was really like. Uh, and we don't do this just for information. You know, some people, why would you study this? Not just for information. It's for preparation of our heart. The book of Acts is really interesting in that it is, uh, it's several different things. It's historical. It's a record of the early church. Uh, it's also theological. We learn things about God in it. But on top of that, it's also devotional. And so we can study it from, from a number of different angles. And uh, what's interesting is your thriving or your faltering in this season when everything is disrupted will hinge largely on your heart. All of us are wrong in our theology about something. It's not our theology that will get us through this. It's not our understanding of history that will get it through us. It is our maintenance of our heart. And that's what we kind of want to address today in chapter 8. Um, one of the things that we've all kind of become aware of distinctly is that we are living in what is quickly becoming uh, what you would call a post-Christian culture. Now, one of the flukes of living in a culture that is recently becoming that is that there are residual ideas of church in the minds of people who have dead hearts. There are all kinds of people who have not been near the church for a while, but they've got an idea of what it, what it stands for or what it should do. If you don't believe that, when you uh, look for any time there's a crisis in a church that's in the news, everyone has an opinion of what should have been done. Because even in our culture, even if they haven't attended, everybody knows how a church should run, or they think they do. If you go to places like Europe, where the church has been in decline and influence for centuries, people are born and live and raised and get married and die with very little thought of what the local church is for. But here in the United States, we're really just on the verge of that happening. And so there are a lot of people who may be unbelievers, but they've got some level of what the church of idea of what the church should be, good or bad. Maybe they had a praying grandmother. Maybe they had a friend who was a cultural Christian at some level. They've got some understanding of that. So what we have is a culture with a, a high level of expectation for the church, even if they don't have any experience or real interest in it. And those expectations and those anticipations that they have about the church are really mostly formed by culture and history rather than the Bible. That's not to say there wasn't good in it or that God didn't move in those things, but there were a lot of other things in there as well. Now, here's the twist. Because of how we've been raised and all we've known, we are at least as much a product of our culture as we are of our faith. And we'd like to think that's not true, but it's really true. And that's why when we read the book of Acts, it feels so starkly different from what we would call church. 
it is likely that the Church of Acts would look at our experience and our anticipation, and they would find it as foreign as what we find when we read the book of Acts, especially in this season of starting, okay? Because of this, of, of the season that we're in, of, of kind of starting over and launching a congregation and, and asking God, what does it look like? It's super important that we do an intentional examination of the book of Acts so we do not build what we've always known rather than what God is ordaining in this season. Everything that we have known in the way of church was always uniquely suited for the age that we lived in, but that day is changing, and if we don't understand how it's changing and we try and move along with it, I'm not saying change our theology, but I'm saying change the form of the church, we're going to find ourselves building wagon wheels on an exit on I-70 and wondering why nobody is stopping and everyone is going so fast past us. First Chronicles 12.32 talks about a group of people who were the sons of Issachar, and it refers to them having understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That, that has multiple meanings. It means they understood the events of the times, but they also understood the process of getting things done. And particularly in times of great change like we find ourselves in right now, the Lord needs and anoints people who can understand the times and get things done. I'm asking that the Lord would make us a body of people like that, that we don't stumble around in the confusion of everything changing, but we'll have some sort of insight of what it should look like. Now, in honor of those that we have walked with in the past, uh, hear me when I say this, we were all doing the best we could, but I'm not interested in a 1980s version of Americanized Christianity. I'm really not even interested in the 2020 version of Americanized Christianity. I want a type of personal faith and community expression that worked in the pressure situation of the first century church and will work in any pressure situation that we enter. So to understand and have that kind of faith, I've got to understand and we've got to understand the New Testament church's experiences and their responses. The little and the rough and the ugly and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because it's all one. If there has ever been a time to re-examine our expression of our faith, not our theology, but how we express and how we interact, it is now. Because the church of 2019 and the church of 2021 will barely recognize one another. Things will have changed so much. During this last year, I've really been intentional about reaching out to friends in ministry and staying in contact with the people, spent more time on the phone with other pastors than I ever have in, in 30 years of ministry. And it's interesting, uh, friends with pastors in small congregations, friends with pastors in megachurches, and as I talk to all of them, almost universally, they're saying similar things. Boiled down, they're saying, we don't know what to do next. Now, they're not saying this in their pulpits, and they're not saying this in their newsletters. They're saying this on the phone to one another. We don't know what to do next. Earlier this week, I spoke with a pastor who I went to college with. We were disconnected for about 25 years. We recently reconnected, and he was telling me that the church across the street has about 300 people pre-COVID, and now uh, they're regathering, and they have made no adjustments whatsoever for, for the new world that we live in. They didn't do anything online. They, they didn't they haven't done anything. And out of his 300 people, he has been unable to get more than 30 back in one place. And he comes over to my friend, John, and he, he says, John, when are my people coming back? 
And John says, I don't have the heart to tell them they're not coming back. They were there out of habit and the habit's broken and it's a new day and we have to look at reaching people in a different way. This is how different the age of the church needs to be. And I don't mean online versus in-person gathering. That's just a symptom right now. I mean fundamentally different in its expectations and needs in this season. And there's a danger of rebuilding according to the patterns of our childhood and our early adulthood and even recent adult experiences because it's all we know. But when I read the book of Acts, I read it in anticipation of two things. One, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and two, an uprising of trouble. Those two expectations rest on me when I look forward and when I read the book of Acts. Now, I don't have a timeline for either of those. I don't have a timeline for what we've all gone through in the last three months. But traditionally, these sorts of things catch people off guard. We have been given a gift in a season to prepare our hearts before things get really hard or before he pours out his spirit or both. And that's the season that we're in right now. So if you have your, your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. Uh, grab a pen. There may be things you might want to write down. Uh, sometimes I find that when I write things down, even if I don't revisit it later, just the act of it going from my head through my hand, it kind of sticks with me in a new way. We're going to look at the first two-thirds of the chapter, uh, chapter 8, and it really divides into two sections. The first section we're going to call this, where the kingdom goes, the kingdom grows. Where the kingdom goes, the kingdom grows. If you remember last week, we ended with the martyrdom of Stephen, a man full of grace and power who had been commissioned to wait tables to make sure that the, uh, the Greek Jews all got their, their allotment of food. And immediately he gets drawn into a confrontation. He preaches a message and he is killed. In the New Testament church, every job is important. And even though he had kind of a, a low profile, almost a menial job, he ends up being a martyr. It wasn't his low profile that made him a target. It was his passion for Jesus. And if you start in Acts chapter 8, a uh, couple of verses, and Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, that word approved, when it says Paul approved of this, has two connotations. It can mean that he allowed it. He passively allowed it. Those of you that are parents know there are things that you allow just because it's easier than it is to get involved. You know, it's like your kids are, are battling it out. And you're like, I could settle this or I'm not. There's a, it's a sense of giving approval to it. There's another sense that he was pleased with it and he encouraged it. The meaning here really is that second sense. He, he wasn't just passive. He actually encouraged this. He took great joy in seeing a man killed. We think of him as a bystander because in Acts 22, it talks about the fact that it says he stood there and held the coats while they uh, crucified or while they stoned Stephen. And it's almost like he was manning the coat check. He just happened to be there and said people, no, no, that wasn't it. He actually was very involved in it because two verses later, we find him actively pursuing believers, conducting house-to-house -house raids. He didn't just approve of Stephen's uh, stoning. He participated in it. And two verses later, he's going house-to-house. -house. Can you imagine being attacked in your own home? You may go places during the course of your day or late at night where you feel threatened. We've all got a place in town where we go, oh, it's kind of a weird place to be. I think I want to get home. But no matter what work was like, no matter how cutthroat the Costco line was, which could be a violent place, or no matter how the road was on Metcalf, wherever you go, when you go home and you click that lock, 
we feel the danger is over. I heard somebody say that home is that place where you make that last turn and you kind of unlock your heart, your heart relaxes. That's where they were when Paul came banging on the door to attack them. It's easy to imagine new believers cowering in their homes as Paul and his henchmen are banging on the door and they want to do the same thing that they did to Stephen. And these new believers are hiding in their homes and their minds go back to the verse that they would read in synagogue from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Their mind is stirring over this and you can almost hear them asking, what part of I shall not want and lead me beside still waters involves Paul banging on my door so that, because they're trying to kill me. I did not know this was a roller coaster when I got in this line. I did not know all of this was going to happen to me when I said yes to Jesus. Did Psalm 23 have an expiration date on it? Because what I'm living in doesn't feel like what was described. Now, the wise ones among them quickly moved on to the latter part of the psalm where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. I've heard that taught. Well, you know, death is just a shadow. It's a shadow, but it's a long shadow, especially when you lose those that you love. Death has no power over the soul of an unbeliever, but that valley is still real. And one of the primary things in surviving persecution, when you're struggling with feeling like I'm in my home and they're banging on the door, but how does that reconcile with Psalm 23, is to recognize that God is still at work through all of this. We can survive an attack of the enemy, but what our heart cannot survive is the lie that God has abandoned us. David wrote extensively about it in Psalm 139. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? So if God's presence is hard to shake, why are they cowering in their homes while Saul pounds on the door, breathing murderous threats? How do you reconcile these two realities? One from scripture that our heart bears witness. We read that Psalm and it's all, oh, that feels so right in our heart. And then we've got the reality of things happening in our lives that are completely out of control. How do we reconcile those two things? It's very simple. And I, I don't mean to be trite, but it's true. God is not done yet. God's not done yet. There's this quote flying around, and I, I really try to be scholarly and track down when, I, when there's a quote that I like or I want to use. I really want to find where it actually came from. Nobody knows where this came from. This, this has been requoted and quoted so many times. Uh, I have found it attributed to uh, Rahm Emanuel, who worked for uh, uh, Barack Obama. I have heard it attributed to Saul Alinsky. I've heard it attributed to Winston Churchill, FDR, and Mark Twain. Could have been any of those guys. Probably it was some random guy before that. Nobody's actually known who said it. But whether you find this quote dangerous or brilliant tends to hinge on who you think said it. If your guy said it, it was brilliant. If the other guy said it, it sounds dangerous. This is the quote. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, God did not say that, but he certainly seems to utilize the idea down through history. God maximizes a crisis for his own good and for the furtherment of his, his people. He takes what seems like could be the worst thing that could happen, and in his infinite wisdom, he brings good from it. Now, we like this as a theory, okay? We like this idea, and we trot out 
Romans 8.28, almost like a good luck charm every time something bad happens. Well, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, anything bad happens, we trot that out. Well, it's going to turn out fine because everything works out for good. But that's a short-sighted approach. The idea that my life or your life is always going to infinitely turn and be rosy and pleasant, that verse misunderstood breeds serious disappointment. I thought everything was going to work out for good, and I lost my job. I thought everything was going to work out for good, but now I've got an adult child living in rebellion. I thought everything was going to work out for good, but I'm lonely right now. Or Saul is banging on my door. Can, you know, Lord, can we define good a little more clearly here? Because I'm not feeling it. How do we reconcile the fact that things are currently not good and they are trending that direction and this verse still exists? That promise is true, but we are so short-sighted. Nothing ever happens that he can't turn for good, even if he chooses to take longer than our lifetime to do it. You see, 10 verses before he said that, Paul promises things working for good in a different way. Romans 8, 18, 10 verses before that, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed with us. Now, that is not a cop-out. That is real talk. You face eternity with a king who will wipe every tear from your eye and every memory of the few decades that you had on earth in pain so that you can enjoy life with him. Everything you're going through will be worth it. So what good comes out of this persecution? What good comes from the fact that suddenly Paul is going door to door and he is hurting people? Two things good come out of this. One, it is displayed that God has an incredibly tender spot for martyrs, for those that surrender their lives for the story of Jesus. God loves those people in a special way. Revelation 6, 9 says, when he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. He has an incredibly tender spot for those who suffer for his name. But the second thing that comes is good out of that is it is revealed that God has a master plan that they cannot possibly imagine. What good can come from this little fledgling church being persecuted and, and encountering such pressure? Well, if you'll remember, just a couple of verses later, it describes it this way. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the church is scattered. And the next verse tells us, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. When the faithful were scattered, the faith goes with them. When believers were scattered, they went sharing the kingdom. It wasn't just that persecutions forced Christians across the region, but persecution forced the gospel message to places that they would have never, ever taken it if they were allowed to stay where they were. If you believe that your season of scattering that we all seem to be in right now, if you believe it's for nothing, then you go somewhere and you hunker down and you rethink, how can we get things back to normal? If you think this season of scattering is for nothing, you fight to get back to a normal that, if we're honest, was not serving us all that well to begin with. But this was not their approach. Those that were scattered about went preaching the word. Remember, in the early chapters, no matter what the church faced, they approached it as an opportunity to tell others about the kingdom of God. They had a great day. It's a great day to preach. 
They had a terrible day. It's a great day to preach. They encountered every obstacle as an opportunity to spread the kingdom. Now, right now, the church is not being persecuted, but we are scattered a little bit. I mean, look at us here. Where are we putting our energy into getting things back to the way things we thought were normal or sharing the life of Jesus that comes when we know him with those who are going through the way it is? We are facing challenges, but we are facing opportunities that we never had a year ago. Your friends who wouldn't have wanted to talk about matters of their heart are suddenly now facing their own emptiness and they're open to having conversations they would have never had six months ago. What an opportunity, even in our scattering. Now, to make life a little more awkward for Philip, he was forced in a direction that he would have never gone. Acts continues, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip, of course, was one of the Hellenistic Jews that we read about just uh, uh, two weeks ago, I guess. And it's interesting that those guys that were commissioned to take care of the feeding of the widows, one of them is immediately martyred, and another one is immediately thrust into the spotlight where he preaches this impassioned message. The next few chapters feature the remarkable ministry of those that had really menial jobs, but in some respects, it would have been easier for Philip just to stay in Jerusalem and continue to feed the, the widow's soup. Instead, he's thrust into a preaching ministry in Samaria. Now, these are people that Philip would have never, ever preached to before. The Samarians were a people who split off from the Jews 600 years before this. When the Assyrians conquered Israel and sent uh, the elite off to Babylon, we've talked about this before, when they sent them and they left the lower class Jews back in Israel, they imported a pagan people from the north. And these imported pagans intermarried with the Jews in northern Israel, and they became Samaritans, and they were looked at as a traitorous, low-caste, pagan, Jewish blend. And it's easy to say that those that were persecuted can't really choose where they got to go. So Philip really didn't have a choice when he went there. We don't get to choose where we go when we're persecuted. What we do get to choose is what we do when we get there. And Philip chose to preach. Now, he could have easily been disillusioned. Can you imagine? He's like, wait a minute. I just got promoted in ministry to the soup line. I was just given, a, like they actually gathered around, they laid hands on me in my congregation, and they prayed for me that I would be anointed to do this. How does this affect my assignment? Wait a minute. I, I had promises about my future. Like, I, you know, I had a prophetic word of something. How does this affect my future? Wait a minute. I, I intended on spending my entire life in Jerusalem. I was going to raise my family there. How do these new developments affect my five-year plan? He could have easily grown, grown disillusioned. And we're, we're surrounded by people right now that are, are becoming disillusioned because life's not turning out the way they thought it was going to turn out. And the smart ones are looking forward and going, we've got to find a different way. He didn't grow disillusioned because he didn't lose sight of the mission. He knew that the mission wasn't about his little assignment to feed soup. It wasn't even about what he thought his future was going to be. The mission was to share the story of Jesus. He might have been dazed and confused by the circumstances, but he started thinking back, okay, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? What did he say? Okay, in Luke 10, 8 and 9, Jesus said, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick, and say the kingdom of heaven has come near you. He remembered that his mission was not to have a good life 
or to work on the little assignment he had. His mission was to share the kingdom of God wherever he found himself. The mission of a believer is to wake up, look around, and spread the kingdom. Now, you work out the details on your own, but ultimately that's what you're called to do. And where the kingdom goes, the kingdom grows. I am so excited about what he is doing, even in this little body here and, and in the difficulty that we're finding in meeting and periodically without, because you know what? Where the kingdom goes, the kingdom grows. And he will honor his word. There's no biblical paradigm for just a maintenance of a body of believers off in a cave somewhere. That doesn't mean that certain congregations don't struggle over time. Even the congregation in Jerusalem needed offerings from younger congregations across the known world throughout the New Testament. But it does mean that we declare the kingdom wherever we are found, and we can trust God to honor that. We bear fruit wherever we are planted. That's what the Church of Acts did. Going on in the book of Acts, with the crowds in one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw signs that he did. And for the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Can you imagine? Here he is. He's in this new city starting to preach. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out of, and the city receives that. It begins to celebrate. Can you imagine opening up the front page of the Kansas City Star and there being an article about the fact that people are being set free from their afflictions and they're being healed? Like how much momentum would have to be gathered there for a city to have great joy? So we see the first section here, which is persecution, the kingdom, where the kingdom goes, the kingdom grows. Then there's this next section, which is about an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And we learn that where revival breaks, hearts are revealed. Now, this is a good thing that's happened here. What happens in Samaria is remarkable. Healings, signs, wonders, demons being cast out, much joy in the city. You would think, this is it. We have arrived. It would be reasonable to expect that when the activity of God breaks out like that over a region or a congregation or a group, although they really weren't a congregation yet, the kingdom is not inhibited by whether or not you formed into a congregation yet, it would be reasonable for them to expect that good times are here and things are just going to get better, except that when revival breaks out, hearts are revealed. And in the demonstration of the Spirit of God, every other spirit that had any kind of authority in that situation begins to manifest itself as well. And people getting free of their demons actually stirs up demons. And when you see revival breaking out, you see people who seemed to be peaceable a minute ago when everything was going well, and suddenly they're stirred up and they're acting out. I have seen things in seasons of an outpouring of the Spirit of people um, demonstrating uh, uh, difficult sides of their own heart that you would have never seen had the Lord not been moving. Now, in the late 90s, there was a, a real move of the Lord in Pensacola, Florida, and I've talked about it before. Kelsey and I were massively impacted by it. This place had services seven nights a week for a season. They had a 3,000-seat sanctuary. They had a 1,500-seat theater across the street. It was kind of an overflow. Then they had a tent for about 500 pe people out back. And it was not unusual for all of these venues to be filled every night. People would come from around the world. Hundreds would come to Jesus every night. Um, they would baptize just 
just scores of people. And we were, we went one weekend and we got in line at 9 a.m. for a 7 p.m. service and we ended up in overflow. We didn't even end up in the main building. Now, when that move started and people started coming and people started being set free, it was genuine. I know other pastors in this city that would participate and come over and help. And they said, no, it was the Lord. When that happened, one of the big things that threatened to blow up the existing church body was people were angry at the amount that the church suddenly had to spend on toilet paper. Like that was one of the line items was, was bathroom uh, things. And, and at the annual business meeting, there was a huge uproar. We're spending what on, when revival breaks out, the cost of toilet paper can be contentious. Can you imagine revival during a pandemic when you can't buy toilet paper anyway? When revival breaks out, hearts are revealed. And it has been like that since the book of Acts. Look at uh, Acts chapter 8. We're looking at 9 through 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They didn't just say he had power, like this guy's name is power. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here's Simon. He's a practicing magician. And at least until Philip showed up and the power of God was on display as to being greater than his, he made a pretty good living. It's important to note, though, here that he believed, he was baptized, and apparently became a follower of Philip's. He accepted Jesus. He demonstrated obedience. He started the internship. Like, he was all in. He was not on the fringe. It's easy to, to question his commitment based on what he does in a couple of verses. But he's committed. Now, I know a lot of people who've been committed, who have gone on to behave horribly, and this is one of those cases. But it'd be easy in light of his story to paint Simon as an outsider, but he was not. He was inside as anybody but there was a development that Simon didn't expect, and it revealed a residual desire for power in his life. In verse 14 of Acts, on to 17, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had, he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, word of explanation here, because this can be a little bit confusing. What's going on? When people started getting saved, Philip, who was one of, one of the elders, called for a couple of the apostles. He called back to the home office, said, can you send somebody down from Jerusalem? This is, this is growing like crazy, and we need some help. We need some support. We need Peter and John to come. They've got more authority, and they probably got a clear understanding of what should happen next. When they get there, they perceived that while the Samaritans were believers, they were lacking something. They were lacking a deeper encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that people who are saved don't automatically have some facet of the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what that means. The Holy Spirit draws us unto salvation. So that how do these people get saved if the Holy Spirit wasn't involved? He was involved. 
The Holy Spirit interacts with humans at two different levels. He comes into us when we are saved. And he is our counselor, he is our guide, he is our conscience. Every believer has the Holy Spirit in them as a kind of an inner witness. Every believer in Jesus has a relationship with the Holy Spirit, whether they have language for it or not. But there is a secondary event that marks his coming upon people for ministry. He is in us for our inner life, but he comes upon us in a baptism for the benefit of others. We produce the fruit of the Spirit based on the Spirit within us. We manifest the gifts of the Spirit based on Him resting on us. Fruit is for our heart and our sanctification. The gifts are for the benefits of others. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 8. And apparently it happens with some element of drama. Because when it does, it attracts Simon, the former magician who had surrendered his life to Jesus. So Simon, the new believer, sees them receiving the Holy Spirit in a new way and manifesting in some way. And we don't really know what it is, but apparently there are spiritual gifts at work there. And all of a sudden, Simon starts thinking, boy, what I could do if I could get a hold of that. You're like, wait a minute, I thought he was saved. Here's the truth. Unregenerate thought patterns exist in the minds of regenerate people. People come to Jesus and they're fully saved, but they still deal with the way they used to think sometimes. This is why we do not put new believers in places of great authority in the church. Because they're working through these old ways of thinking. And in Acts 8, 18 and 19, the, Simon's past and his old unregenerate ways of thinking affect what he's going through. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered him money. Can you imagine having so little understanding of, of uh, John, the apostle, who's come down to help, that you would take him off to the side and say, there's 20 bucks in this for you. Just let me do this. He was saying, give me this power also so that anyone that I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon, remembering the old days, which weren't that far behind him, thinks, I was making good money as a magician. This power is power like I never had. If we could monetize this, we could go viral. He might even be, have been thinking, this could be good for the church. This could be a side business. Turn me loose with this power. This story is so well known through history that eventually a word was formed to describe selling spiritual gifts. And the word was more popular in the 1800s. We don't hear it anymore. But the word is simony. Can you imagine doing something so grossly inappropriate in the midst of revival that 1,800 years later, the word for doing it is your name? When revival breaks, hearts are revealed. When people begin to operate in the gifts of the Spirit and the kingdom is expanding, those who are in that realm have their hearts laid bare. So what is our takeaway from this story? The takeaway is when the Spirit of God begins to move, it is time to be doubly sure that our hearts are right with Him. It's when the fear of God kicks in because when the Holy Spirit moves, the unholy Spirit stirs up every bit of resentment and latent anger that we may have, and it all comes out. I am believing for something through all of this pandemic and all of this scattering. The Lord does not disrupt our lives recreationally. And so I am believing that even as we are being scattered and even as we may face persecution, we will eventually, that even in that, 
that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in a way that we've never encountered. And both of those things are ultimately dangerous if our heart is not in the right spot. There will be those who endure hard persecution and then enter into the glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they'll find that the glory of God manifest among us is more offensive to them than persecution was. Because persecution and revival have similar effects on the human heart. They lay it bare. Every day that we are not being persecuted or we are not in some element of revival, we need to be asking, Lord, what in our heart is out of alignment that could not afford to be revealed if you poured yourself out on me? Because either one of those things will show who we really are. You know, we talk about putting ourselves in the storyline. We read the Bible and say, what would it be like if I were there? Well, let's take a minute and put Simon Magnus and Peter the Apostle in our storyline. In this day and age, what does leadership do when a new believer reveals his unregenerate thought patterns? Does he hand him off to a small group? Does he send him to a class? Does he ignore him and hope he gets better? In this case, Peter strongly challenges Simon, and a strong apostolic leadership probably saves Simon's life. Acts 8, 20 to 24. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. I don't want your money, Simon. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God for money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter because your heart is not right before God. How do we respond when we see believers acting out of offense? Do we walk on eggshells around them? Peter doesn't talk to him about inner healing, although sometimes that's needed. Peter talks to him about repentance. I'm all for inner healing, but without repenting, it's just pushing people's buttons until they feel better. Peter tells him what he really needs to know. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, <laughs> puts a little fear in him, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He said, Simon, I got to tell you some hard things right now. You're a believer, you've been baptized, you're a part of the internship, but you're struggling with some things that you have withheld, and there's a bitterness in your heart. How does Simon respond to that? Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said might come upon me. Simon responds in tenderness. Both persecution and revival will push our buttons. And friends, I see both of them coming our way. I don't have a timeline for it, but if my hunch is right, we will see both, and the best days of the kingdom will be here if we keep our hearts tender and speak truth to one another and listen to one another and to the Spirit of God. I was driving in this morning uh, because I, I do the Zoom from Zoe's house, and I told Kelsey when I got here, I said, I just felt so off. Everything was off. I drove by empty church parking lots. Streets are empty. Stopped to get coffee. The coffee shop was randomly closed today. Sorry, no coffee for you. And I was struck by just how different things are right now. Even though they're not terribly hard, they're just different. And I was so bothered by it, just so bugged. And it felt like the Lord said, don't waste so much energy getting, trying to get back to normal when normal was not accomplishing what I want to accomplish in your life. Lean into what I am doing now. Normal isn't coming back. I don't want to miss what he is doing in my heart. I don't want you to miss what he's doing in your heart because we are pining for the old days, which if you remember, weren't that great. They were just comfortable.
I think both of these things, persecution and revival, are coming. And ahead of us, I believe, are the best days of the church. Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious as to let us connect and be alive in this season. Lord, in some senses, we are more alive than we've ever been in our lives. So with our our hearts open and our, our spiritual tentacles extended, we say, would you speak to us? Would you show us what you are doing in this season? Make us as the sons of Issachar who understand the times, know what you're doing and know what to do in it. We don't want to waste time pining for the way things were when you want to work in the circumstances that we're in right now. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Most of the teachings on this podcast come from a Zoom teaching that I do on Sunday mornings. We also do prayer meetings throughout the week. If you'd like to join us, go to zoefoundationkc.com. That's Zoe, Z-O-E, foundationkc.com. Sign up for the email, which will get you the links to join us for prayer on Zoom. Glad to have you today. Have a good one. Still matter